0: Good morning, church. It's fantastic to have you here this morning. If you have uh, your Bible, so you can turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19, this morning. Luke, chapter 19. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 28. Um, but before we do, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this time and this uh, season uh, that we have things that mark our calendars that put us into a regular habit and pattern of looking, uh, looking to things that are more important than our jobs, our our day-to-day activities but are are greater. The the story of your son entering into Jerusalem and heading to the cross, and suffering and dying and raising for. For us sinners, to redeem and rescue us who cannot be, cannot redeem or rescue ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that as we turn to it now, that you would, that you would open it up to our hearts, and that we would be captured and drawn in uh, to your presence because of it in your precious in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Like I said, uh, Luke chapter 19 this morning, we're going to be looking at this at Luke's account of the triumphal entry which starts in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Again, Lord God, we ask that your spirit would be present in our hearts and in our minds so that we would hear and know your word and be drawn into your presence through the work of Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his name, amen. So, this is a story that is again found in all four gospel accounts. Uh, We've we've touched on a number of, of these stories as we've gone through the season of Lent, and uh, this one, again, is one that even uh, that all four gospel writers address. And I said last week, and I, I think I maybe said it a couple weeks ago as well, that, that there really are not that many stories uh, that are in all four gospel accounts. The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus entering into Jerusalem, Jesus dying on the cross, they're the, the big ones that we really uh, should know about. And this, I think, is again one of them. But this story bit is, is a little bit different than the other stories that we find in all four gospel accounts, in that the, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, use this story in four different ways. Now, what I mean by this is that is that from different perspectives, we can watch the same events unfolding and from from different people's points of view, the story can mean very different things. Now, this is abundantly clear if you just take four seconds and look at any political anything. But let me, let me use a lighter situation, right? About a year ago, maybe a little less than a year ago, uh, Cleveland's hero LeBron James left Cleveland and went to Los Angeles to play for the Lakers. And basically everybody in Cleveland was sad. Many were were upset. Uh, we're not going to be any good again. It's a very sad day in Cleveland. I mean many of us knew it was coming, but it was still a sad day in Cleveland, but for the Lakers or at least those that aren't like hardcore Kobe Bryant fans, they were all rejoicing. Oh, this is great. The greatest news we've ever heard, the greatest player in NBA is is coming to Los Angeles, we're going to be good this year. Right? Same story, same events, two different perspectives that in this story are completely opposite. Now, a year later, the Lakers don't make it into the playoffs and Cleveland fans all go, yeah, see, you should have stayed in Cleveland. And the Lakers fans are all now sad. It's fun. Now, while... The story that is being used here, the the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, it, while it is, it doesn't have quite the differing of of purpose in each of the gospel accounts. They're they're very different. Today we're going to look at Luke's, but before we can understand what Luke is doing, we have to understand what the story was meant for. What What actually took place? What was Jesus teaching us as he enters into Jerusalem? And it's the the same message in all four Gospels. And then they just take that message, Jesus is king. And then they overlay it on their story to tell us something more than this. I hope that makes sense. If you're confused by that, please come talk to me. Jesus does something in this story That is unquestionably profound. Jesus makes a very definitive statement by his words and his actions. And if we look at scripture openly and honestly, it's very easy to see. it. Jesus proclaims himself in this story, in this event, to be king. But not just king, but a king who comes in righteousness and with salvation. King who comes in righteousness and salvation. If you would turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles open, you can, you can turn there. I'm going to read this before we look at the story in depth because I think it helps us to see this more clearly. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read this. This is, a prof- this is a prophetic statement from the Old Testament. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Which basically just means people of Israel. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Same thing. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, and this is where we start to see what's happened here. Humble, and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is a prophecy that happens many hundreds of years previous to the events that happened here in Jerusalem. If we turn again to verse 28, we see... What Jesus is doing. It says when he said these things, and we'll get back to that in just a minute. When he said these things, what things? Well, these things that we'll talk about in a minute, like I said. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany, Bethphage and Bethany. We know where Bethany is. We're not too sure where Bethphage is. But they, we, we believe both of them are suburbs of the city of Jerusalem. So, Jerusalem is is a city city. These are small little villages, little outposts. And as he drew near to these two places, which are very near together, and Bethany is not unfamiliar to us if we've been looking at the story, if we've been traveling through the story with Luke, we know that what just literally just happened in uh, Bethany was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Which, by the way, makes Jesus really extremely popular. Now, can you imagine somebody raising somebody from the dead, how quickly that news would spread in, in our time? The same, This news spread like wildfire in uh, the region, certainly in Bethany and undoubtedly in Bethphage, which is a neighboring town. So as they're drawing near to Bethany in Bethphage, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. Now he takes, gets these two guys and he sends them on. He tells them what to do. He says, go into the village in front of you where you're going to find a colt tied. Now, when we looked at the Zechariah passage, we saw that it was a donkey and then a specification of what kind of donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in, in Greek and in Hebrew and really in English, a colt is any kind of horse genome, whatever that's called. Equestrian, is that right? Any kind of horse-like animals, young child, a, a, a foal, right? You all understand this more than better than I'm trying to explain it, so I apologize. So when when Zechariah says a donkey and a colt, a colt of the donkey, Luke understands that all he really has to say to get that same truth across is to call it a colt. He doesn't specify what kind of animal. Is it a donkey or is it a horse? Both would be true. Both descriptions are right. And this clears up for us a lot of the issues that we have in comparing the different gospel accounts. Sometimes we get caught up in this. Oh, it's a colt. It must be a horse. But Zechariah says a donkey, and, and I think Mark says a donkey, and Matthew says a donkey and a colt. Very confusing says, go and, and get this colt on which no one has ever yet sat. When Jesus says this, he's trying to clue us in that this animal is going to do something of spiritual nature. When you made a sacrifice in the Old Testament, you were not allowed to sacrifice an animal that had been worked. So if you were going to sacrifice a ram, you weren't allowed to take a ram that has done anything yet. It needs to be pure and and unblemished, unblemished in physical appearance and in uh, in physical stature. The same thing is true whenever you do anything of spiritual nature. It has to be unwritten. Something spiritual is about to happen. Go into this city and get this cult. And anybody who is listening who has any any, uh, growing knowledge of the Old Testament is going to start to make this connection. He's... He's asking for this colt. He says, untie it and bring it here. He goes on and he says, there's going to be some people who might ask you uh, to stop. And you're going to tell them the Lord has need of it. When he says this, he does something very unusual. He says, the Lord has need of it. He doesn't say the Son of Man has need of it, which is his most common title for himself and he doesn't say jesus needs it now if you want to get something at this point you just raised somebody from the dead i guarantee you everybody in the region knows the name of jesus if you want something that's not actually yours you're probably going to say jesus needs it and they're going to give it to you because you just raised somebody from the dead now he owes me a favor but that's not what jesus says is it it's actually very rare for jesus to call himself lord It's very rare for Jesus to call himself Lord, but why does he do it here when it maybe is better for him to use a different term for himself? Sends him on away, lo and behold, everything that he said was going to happen, happened. Now we can understand this two ways. Jesus is either prophesying about the events that are just about to take place which is perfectly reasonable, perfectly logical, and would fit exactly into Jesus' uh, miracle-working abilities. But we could also understand this to be Jesus simply planned ahead. Both are perfectly viable options. And both say the exact same thing. It was Jesus' decision to do this thing. Either Jesus decided in advance and sent somebody on and prepared this colt to be ready to go, or Jesus knew that he was going to fulfill the Zechariah prophecy and he sent on ahead and knew that the donkey was going to be there. Either way, Jesus knows what he is doing. He is claiming to be something. He is claiming to be the king. But not just another king, not just a king that like Solomon and David, which in, in Zechariah's mind, if you study the book of Zechariah, is who he has in mind when he talks about this. King Solomon, when he takes the throne in 1 Kings chapter 1, he rides into Jerusalem on, you guessed it, a colt. If you were a king uh, in the ancient world, not just in Jerusalem, but if you were a, a king who just conquered a region, you know what you did whenever you went into that new region that you just conquered? You rode a colt in as a symbol of your now kingship over this region. An untrained horse is what a colt is. I have no fear of entering into this city. I don't need to ride a war horse because I don't fear this city. I am conqueror over. Jesus enters into Jerusalem both in the language of the people, the general people around him, proclaiming himself to be king, and in the language of the Old Testament, proclaiming himself to be king. Now we see this, right? We all have access to the Bible. By the way, we all have access to the Bible. Did you know that? It's free online. Every person in this room, I, I think, has a smartphone. You can download apps. We have access to this book. So we recognize that, that this is easy to tell. We can flip back in our Bibles to find the Zechariah passage. In fact, my Bible right here has a note. This is a prophecy being fulfilled by Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. I can easily find this information, right? But did they... Do the people around Jesus get it? Maybe Jesus is making a definitive statement: "I am the King who comes humbly in righteousness and in salvation." Maybe he says this and nobody gets it. All four gospel accounts teach us something contrary to that. They get it. They picked up on his little his little his his clues here. It'd be very hard at this point. To believe that Jesus wasn't this person. Now, let's make something very clear here. Peter, he got it, right? He knew that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus asked him. Mark chapter 8 and in other places in the gospel. Mark chapter 8. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. Yes, you're right, Peter. But his understanding of what that meant wasn't right. Because immediately after, Jesus says, yes, I'm going to die and raise. And Peter goes, no, you're not. I will stop them. And he's like, you don't get it. That's what it means for me to be the Christ. Right? They understand at this point, the people, the disciples, they understand at this point the events that Jesus has been been doing, the things that Jesus has been doing, the the entering into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, he is proclaiming himself to be king. They get it. He is king. Now, they don't know what that means, but he is king. And we know this because of verse 38. Excuse me. Maybe if I click the right one. Blessed is who? This is the people. This is Jesus' disciples. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not just saying this. They don't just have a high respect for Jesus. This is treasonous talk. The Romans are very, very serious about anybody claiming authority that doesn't have it by their decisions. So much so that if you would claim somebody to be a king and you weren't a Roman citizen, and that person wasn't actually appointed by Rome, they would crucify you on a cross like Jesus did, died. This is not passive. This is, this is extremely dangerous for Jesus' disciples to proclaim. They Get it? Sort of. See, because for the people of Israel at this time, a king meant a conqueror of Rome. A king meant a conqueror of Babylon, which is who Zachariah is talking about. The king meant a conqueror of the Persians or a conqueror of the Greeks or a conqueror of name the nation. But what's interesting about the Old Testament is we see Messiah figures coming and going coming and rescuing the people by their their works. You look at the book of Judges. Every single character in the book of Judges is is a Messiah figure, a person anointed by God to rescue the people of Israel. But they're not the Messiah because what they do is they conquer a people and then what happens? They go right back into oppression. The people of Israel, yes, they get that Jesus is king. He's proclaiming himself to be king. But they don't understand what that means. See, when, when uh, Solomon, he rides into Jerusalem on his colt, very similar to Jesus here. What, what he does is he goes and he is, he's anointed with oil and he's set on a throne and he stands as a ruling and reigning monarch. Sometimes we misrepresent why Jesus is king. Sometimes we think that what Jesus does in his resurrection makes him king. He's conquered something at this point, right? He's conquered death. That makes now he's king. Now we can call him. No, Jesus proclaims himself to be king a week before his death and resurrection because what is Jesus doing? He is turning the picture of kingship on its head. Yeah, the people get it. The people know he's king, just like Peter knew that he's Christ. But they don't understand what that means. But Jesus most certainly does. Jesus knows that what makes him king is that he is the servant who comes on behalf of the people who have rejected him and turned away from him and sinned against him so that he could one day, a week later, go onto the cross, suffer and die for our sins to reconcile us to him. Jesus is king not because he's going to come and conquer the Romans because you know what happens? Rome falls on their own. And Great Britain rises up in its stead. Maybe Great Britain looks a little bit less uh, pagan and vulgar. Mm, They're not much different. Same thing as the Romans over Greece and the Greeks over Persia and the Persians over the Babylonians and the Babylonians over the Assyrians and go on and on and on. Nation after nation after nation will rise up and conquer whoever rises up. Jesus comes to be king in a different light. He comes to be king not to conquer a people, not to conquer Rome, but to conquer death itself. This is why Jesus is king. You know what's really interesting though? There's one last thing that Jesus does here to proclaim himself to be king, just so that we're abundantly clear. After this great proclamation of Jesus being king by his disciples, the Pharisees, our favorite little enemies of Jesus, they come in to try to mess things up and they say, Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, there could be two motivations they could be scared that they're going to be crushed by the Romans. Possible. They could really hate Jesus and want him not to be important. Likely. They think that Jesus is letting his disciples say something that is untrue. Sir. Teacher, rebuke your students. Tell them to be quiet. It's not doing any good for them to go to the to the, to the disciples, go, shh, shh. They're not listening. So they go to Jesus. Jesus, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says something that is absolutely stunning. He says, listen, listen, listen. I tell you, if, if these were silent, if these people were silent, these rocks that have no ability to speak, they would cry out. Why? Because at this moment in human history, the message that Jesus of Nazareth Is the king who comes in righteousness and in salvation. Was meant to be proclaimed. Irregardless of what everybody else sees. God said this moment as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. The whole world will hear the message. My son is king. Isn't that amazing? I think So this is what this story means. Jesus is, is king, but Luke, Luke places it here, and he gives us a couple additional points. I was listening to a, a, a preacher who who I respect greatly this this past week, and um, he made this point. One way that we can know what the passage is about is take it away, and what do we lose? Take it away, what do we lose? I think we lose uh, the glue that holds verses 11 to 27 and 41 through 44 together. See, if we go back in our in the Bibles, and you can go there if you want, to, to Luke chapter 19, verse 12. I'm just going to read parts of this, and I'll, I'll help us along here just to save a little time because we don't have time to really digest this Jesus tells a parable he tells a parable about a about how the kingdom of god looks he says in verse 12 he says he said a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return so what that means is, is this king figure he goes in and he conquers over a people conquers over a people and then he goes home he goes away goes back to where he's where he's from And then he says, and calling ten of his servants, likely people he has just conquered, he gave them ten minus of amount of money, and said to them, "Engage in business until I come." But this, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, "We do not want this man to reign over us." Okay, so some of these ten men are servants. They're gonna to listen. To They're gonna do some, and others harm him, want to put him to death. Perhaps you're starting to see some similarities. It says, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. It says, in the first guy he comes and he had one mina, so so ten servants, ten minas split up between all of them, one mina each. Takes his ten mina is 1 minus excuse me and he multiplies it 10 times a business growth plan of 1000% pretty spectacular in this king he says well done good job the next guy he comes up uh, he only multiplied it by 5 500% growth still pretty spectacular well done good job then this third guy and we only get 3 we only get 3 of the servants uh, because I think we see the whole picture. This third guy, he comes up and he says, you're terrifying. You take what's not your own. You're scary. And so I took my mind that you gave me to to grow as in business. And I hid it in a handkerchief so that when you came back, I wouldn't have lost it. But I would have it so I could give it to you. Didn't I do a good job? And the king says, no. And so he takes it from him, and he gives it to the man who has ten. Because, we see, says I tell you, that everyone who has, who has more will be given, but the one who has not, even what he has, has will be taken away. Now, this doesn't mean the rich will get richer because they're rich, and the poor will get poorer because they're poor. This means that the person who has been given, right? These guys didn't have the mina before. They've been given something to multiply it, and those people who multiply it will get more, and those people who don't multiply it will get less. But as for these enemies of mine, now he brings the enemies back in. These guys who want to put him to death. He says, who, who, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And then verse 28 of our passage. After he said these things, this parable, he enters into Jerusalem. And what does he, what does he definitively say about himself? I'm king. Let's make this very clear. Jesus is saying that he's the king of this story. But but then but then something else happens at the end in verse 41. It says when he drew near and saw the city Jerusalem the representation of the people of Israel he wept over it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When Jesus sees Jerusalem, he weeps over it because he's the mother hen trying to bring his people in and they're running away, rejecting him. He wept over it, saying, would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes. You had the mina and you hid it and now it's being taken away from you. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. About 30 years from now, the people of Israel, 40 years from now, the people or the nation, excuse me, the city of Jerusalem will be conquered by the Romans again, and they'll destroy the temple. They'll tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you do not know the time of your visitation. So, what is the bigger picture that Luke is painting for us? Jesus proclaims himself to be king, absolutely. I think what Luke shows us is that we have a choice. We can be the servant who makes 10 minus in profit or we can be the servant who hides it. We can do let me let me make this a little bit plainer. We can believe like Jesus disciples did and proclaim blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord or we can be Jesus enemies. We can be the Pharisees who tell the people to be quiet to stop saying this nonsense. See, there is only two options in the question of life. This has been the theme through the the whole Lenten period, right? This is what I've been talking about every single week. there's, There's only two choices. There's not a spectrum of choices. We can't sort of agree that Jesus is King and Lord over our lives. We can't sort of agree that He's not King and Lord of our lives. We either... Agree that Jesus, with Jesus' claims to be king, to be the one who comes in righteousness, bearing salvation in his work on the cross a couple days later, or we reject him. It's not a middle of the road question. Matt told us a story a couple weeks ago in his communion message about a man in Australia who would ask sailors, If you would die today, would you be in heaven or would you be in hell? Because the question is really that simple. Jesus definitively claims himself to be king. Not just a king who is going to rule over the Romans, but a king who is going to conquer death with his own death. Do you believe that Jesus is king? Or not? Will you accept what he has given you and put it to work, or will you hide it away? silently plot against him? Will you reject him? C.S. Lewis says, I believe this is a C.S. Lewis quote. I think some people question whether it is or not. C.S. Lewis said, uh, if we look at the Bible, there's really only two things that we can say. We can either say Jesus is exactly who he says he is, or we have to call him a crazy person. Because the things that Jesus proclaims of himself are really quite absurd. Unless we believe them. Then the whole story fits. See, we are desperate sinners. We are desperate sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus, the King, was that Savior came to this earth to take our place on the cross to suffer and die in our stead let me ask you the same question that the man from Australia asked if you would die tonight where would you end up in heaven with your king or in hell. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that your work is what we need, your Son is what we've been given. And today, Lord, we confess the same words that your disciples confessed so long ago. You are king. And that you are blessed. Glory to your name. Glory to your word. Glory to your son. In heaven here and here on earth. Father, we thank you and we praise you. It was only in and through Jesus' precious and holy name.